Welcome back, everyone. It's episode 26 of Jointly Venturing. Tonight we have with us a really special guest um, who I think is in Spain, either Spain or France. We'll find out in a minute. Um, I'm in Australia about to undergo the second lengthy lockdown due to COVID cases here. And tonight we're going to ask everybody to think about what it means to care about people in places where you might have never been and why some people decide to dedicate their entire lives to achieving justice for people everywhere, including most of the time people that they will never meet, people who might have already passed away because of the human rights violations carried out against them. And what individual people can do with the one life that they're lucky enough to have to try to bring some semblance of justice to a world that needs a lot more of it. So tonight we are very happy to have with us an old friend, Reed Coleman Brody, who is also known currently as the Dictator Hunter. Films have been made about him, articles have been written, New York Times has covered his work. He generally works for Human Rights Watch. And for the last 10 or 15 years, he's really had a focus in his human rights work on trying to bring dictators to justice, those leaders in the world who generally, through nefarious means, took power, often through massive human rights violations, and who eventually, as they always are, uh, were ousted from power, and Reed has undertaken a whole range of activities around the world to give some semblance of justice to the victims of these dictators. So, Reed, welcome to Jointly Venturing. Thank you very much, Scott. Very happy to be here. So, are you in France now, or are you in Spain? I'm in Spain. I'm in Barcelona, where where I've been living. Um, we'll probably if all goes well, spend August in France. Uh, okay, okay, good. Good to know, good to know. So um, so when when precisely did you start working on the dictator issue? And then we'll go back to some of the you know earlier uh, career highlights, but how long has it been now? 20 years, 15 years? Yeah, it really, it began with the case of uh, the former dictator of Chile, Augusto Pinochet. Um, uh, he was arrested in London in October 1998. And, and um, we had just come back from Rome from the creation of the International Criminal Court. And uh, a couple of months later, uh, we heard that uh, Pin uh, Pinochet, the former dictator of, of Chile, uh, was arrested in London on a warrant from a judge in Spain uh, for crimes committed uh, 20 years earlier in Chile. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, when that happened, we realized that this was, this was, the, this, this was an important um, breakthrough that needed to be defended. And, and um, at Human Rights Watch, we mobilized to, to defend that arrest. Ultimately, um, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International were a, uh, were uh, allowed to participate 
in the case. When Pinochet was arrested, he said, wait a second, you can't arrest me. I was a head of state. I have immunity. And he challenged his arrest in the British court. And it went up to the to the House of Lords, which at the time was the um, the Supreme Court, the apex court in, in England. Mm-hmm. And um, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty were allowed to participate in the case as, as interveners. And when the House of Lords ruled that Pinochet could be arrested for extradition purposes, uh, despite his status as a former head of state anywhere in the world, based on universal jurisdiction, on the torture convention, on the the duty of of countries to arrest uh, people uh, who committed torture, Mm -hmm. Uh, when, 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 when the House of Lords handed down that ruling, um, we realized that we had a legal tool um, in international justice and so-called universal jurisdiction um, to bring to justice people who seemed out of the reach of justice. Mm-hmm. And after the Pinochet case, we were really, we were deluged by requests from, uh, you know, I, I had famously at the time called the Pinochet case a wake-up call for dictators. Right. But what it really was, was a, uh, a, a, a a ray of hope, a wake up call for victims and for activists who suddenly say, well, wait a second, we have, uh, you know, we have Suharto, we have uh, Strausser, we have Idi Amin, we have, uh, you know, so and so. And we we began really to, to look at how, um, you know, we could use international justice to help victims uh, uh, where it seemed impossible. And um, we, I, I would say, I mean, we actually, we, we, there were, you know, this was a champagne moment for the human rights movement. The Pinochet case was the result of, of, of many years of work by Chilean activists um, who even during the Pinochet dictatorship had, had documented the crimes of the dictatorship, who filed habeas corpus petitions, who had everything um, prepared and, and, um, uh, you know, one of the members of our legal team in London was a Chilean lawyer named Roberto Garreton, who I think you probably know, Scott, right. um, from Geneva, um, who said, um, you know, read what I filed, you know, 1,300, whatever habeas corpus petitions. Do you know how many succeeded under Pinochet? Mm-hmm. I said, and I said, none. He said, but now I see why I did it. Now I realize how worthwhile it all was because now all that documentation we did is being used and Pinochet is here. And the other thing he said that was really interesting and that has guided me a lot um, was uh, by coincidence, Roberto, who, who at the time of Pinochet was the, the legal director of the Catholic Church's legal office in, in, in Chile. Mm-hmm. Um, by this time, he was a diplomat, and he was actually the, the UN rapporteur on, on human rights in, in the Congo, in Zaire, what was called Zaire. Right. Um, and he said, you know, Reed, I'm, I, I can tell you under Pinochet exactly how many people were killed and how many people were disappeared. You know, it was 2,000, whatever the number was, I think it was, and it wasn't a huge number, actually, when you think it was like, you know, 2,040 who were killed or an equal number who were disappeared. 
um, I'm the UN rapporteur on the, and he said, and I have the names and I have the pictures and I have the stories of each one of them. Mm-hmm. I'm the UN's leading expert mm-hmm. on human rights in Zaire and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I cannot tell you if it were 2 million people who were killed or 3 million people who were killed. Um, and that is why, and I, when he said that, I thought to myself, that is why Pinochet is standing justice, justice and not Mobutu, because the victims are known, they're active, they have names, they have stories. And African victims, you know, tend not to have names and stories. Um, yeah, and exactly true. I'm, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but but that really has guided um, the work that I have tried to do in the last 20 years since, which is to, to work with victims, um, not just, you know, to file cases, but to tell the stories and to give them names and to create a solidarity with them on the part of the people who are going to have to decide ultimately whether to bring their, um, you know, their, their, their torturers to justice. I mean, everybody knew who Pinochet was. Everybody remembered the victims. And same in Argentina, the mothers of the Plaza Maya walking every day. Everybody knew who they were. Mm-hmm. And after the Pinochet case, we began to get um, uh, requests from different people around the world. And, and, and the, the, we, we actually started a bunch of cases. Um, uh, the, the one that, that kind of took, took off and, and took root was the case of the former dictator of Chad, Kisten Habre. And um, he, had, he was the U.S.-backed dictator, uh, as many of these folks are. Like as Pinochet Pinochet. was. Pinochet was very uh, U.S. supportive, of course. In fact, almost all the ones I've worked on have been. Um, and, um, Delphi, I, I was introduced to the, um, president of the leading Chadian human rights group who said, you know, we have our, Pinochet, his name is Hissen Habre, and he was in power in the eighties in Chad and he fled to Senegal, um, when he was overthrown and, uh, he's in Senegal now. And what, what was very exciting to me and to my colleagues at Human Rights Watch about that case was that he was in Senegal. He was in an African country that, you know, that to the extent that people objected to the Pinochet case, and, and there wasn't that much objection, but to the extent that there was, it was, well, wait a second, how come Spain and England are, are prosecuting a Chilean? You know, why is it always the, the, the colonizers who are prosecuting, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, and, and here in, and, you know, and, and, and to try to break that paradigm, it was really interesting to have Senegal, which is the first country in the world to have ratified the, the treaty establishing the international criminal court, which is a leader in, in, or certainly considers itself to be a leader, but is in, in, you know, in, in international human rights. Um, and we thought if we could get an African country to use this international justice principle, then we could re- it would really be universal. It wouldn't just be, you know, the England's and Spain's and Belgium's and America's. Um, and um, so, you know, we helped the victims 
file a case in 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 Senegal. We we help the victims from Chad go to Senegal, file a case. Um, and this was in this was in two thousand. So this is about how many years after he was ousted did you file the case? So we filed the case eight years. He was the he was the we filed the case ten almost ten years after he was ousted. So he was the he was the dictator from nineteen ninety from nineteen eighty two to nineteen ninety, and we filed the case ten years later. Right, and up until then he'd been living high on the hog. He had two mansions overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. In Senegal, he had, you know, as many of these fellows do, he had managed to basically empty out his country's treasury before he left. And, and really, that was that was the paradigm. I mean, that's what Mobutu did. That's what everybody did. I mean, you brutalize your country, you pillage your treasury. And when your time is up, you know, you just take your money and you go somewhere else. And, and the next guy does the same thing. And that was kind of the cycle that, you know, we, 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 we were trying to stop. And, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you want to go into the whole history and Hobbes story, but <laughs> the long and short of it is it took, it took 20 years. It took, actually, we filed the first case in night in two, in January, 2000. And we finally got him to trial in July, 2015. And he, he was then convicted and he's now sitting in a Senegalese jail. Um, uh, what was so the sentence? Kind of, I also, in the meantime, in, in the meantime, I worked on a bunch of other cases, the case of Jean-Claude Duvalier, Baby Doc in Haiti, um, the case of, um, I tried to bring a case against Idi Amin. Um, I've also done a lot on the U.S. Um, I wrote actually a, a report for Human Rights Watch on why George Bush and Dick Cheney and uh, uh, Donald Rumsfeld and, and, um, and George Tennant, the head of the CIA, have a case to had a case to answer for torture and war crimes, um, and actually the dictator hunter thing. I mean, it's a lovely, it's lovely kind of calling card, and it's very catchy and sexy <laughs> and whatever. But it doesn't. Re- First of all, it doesn't really describe. I think the the serious constructive work I, I'm trying to do, you know, with victims, um, and it also. I mean, I we don't go after people because they were dictators. Um, go after people because they committed torture or war crimes. Um, so you have people who are dictators who didn't do that kind of stuff. And you have people like George Bush um, who are not dictators, but who did. So it's, 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 it's not exact. The title is not exact, but you know, I'll take it. Yeah. Close enough. Close enough. So just, um, just to go back quickly to Pinochet. So he took power in 1973 in September 11th, actually the, the first time September 11th was made famous in 1973, backed by the CIA and United States government and, uh, overthrew a democratically elected, uh, democratic socialist, um, governor, uh, government leader and, uh, Salvador Allende. And held power until 1990, right? From memory, is that right? Yeah, um, roughly that's 17 correct. years. That's I think correct. so. Yeah, that's correct. And then he, yeah, and then he, he, he. Um, of course, the, the seven, 1973 coup that brought him to power was also it's very interesting because it was also a turning point in the global fight for human rights. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, it was a, his coup really shocked 
um, the world um, because, first of all, because Chile, unlike many other countries in Latin America, had a long democratic tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned, Salvador Allende was the elected president, and he succeeded a century's worth of elected presidents. Um, but also because, um, you know, there were scenes of people being rounded up in stadium, in the stadium, mm-hmm. people aren't, and, and people being disappeared. And, and, and what was interesting was that it was up until then, and Scott, you know, this from the time that we were together, you know, in, in Geneva in the, in, in the eighties, um, you know, there was a time when you couldn't really talk about, I mean, the international system for protection of human rights was basically in, a, in, in, in gridlock. And, and the Soviet bloc would not allow discussion of what was going on in individual countries unless it was apartheid South Africa or Israel. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. And and here you had one of theirs. I mean, it wasn't, Salvador Yandy was not a communist and he wasn't part of the communist bloc, but, but obviously it was, he was a leftist government. And here you had a right wing coup. And so the Soviet Union couldn't say anything about, you know, it was one of theirs. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as a result, you had these floodgates that kind of opened up and you had a UN carry out a very important mission under Theo Van Boven, who we both know. Right. Uh, Neil McDermott of the International Commission of Jurists mm-hmm. was, you know, went there. Um, and it was the, and what was also, but what was also interesting and, and it, it went out is that it, it unleashed these words. Chile, Chile is a middle-class country. You had, hundreds of thousands of, you know, intellectuals, you know, educated Chileans fleeing into exile in countries like the United States, Venezuela, Mexico, Europe, Spain, France. And they, they gave impetus um, to a, a, a renewed human rights movement. Jimmy Carter was became president, made human rights a big deal. Um but, you know, Amnesty Inter- people from Chile, you know, con- you know, uh, conscient, I forget the word in English, but they conscientize their, 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 you know, their neighbors in Spain and, and America and other places. And, and it was a powerful impetus for, for, Am- for the human rights movement, for Amnesty International, for the creation of the torture convention, for all of these laws. And what was amazing to me, actually, 50, 20 years later, um, sitting in the House of Lords was that you had um, behind, sitting behind us, you had Chilean exiles, you had members of Amnesty International um, who were using the, you know, the the, the the tools that were created. So so Pinochet does makes the coup, the, the starts torturing people, the exiles go out. Amnesty International's membership doubles. Amnesty campaigns for the torture convention. Torture convention is ratified. Chile, under Pinochet, ratifies the torture convention. And then the torture convention is used to arrest Pinochet. And so it was a kind of a circle that was, um, you know, that was being, that was, we'd come full circle uh, in that case. Right. And uh, so just explain to listeners how it all ended. How did it end once uh, Pinochet was arrested in London? So, so Pinochet is arrested. Um, he says 
he challenges his arrest. He says, you know, I have immunity. Um, the case goes up to the British House of Lords, which, um, you know, at the time was uh, or the panel that was the first panel that was here in the case were five old men from Oxford and Cambridge. Um, it was really a very conservative court. Um, but they found uh, and there was a, a moment when they they rose the, the judges. So this case lasted weeks and weeks mm-hmm. um, of oral argument. And, and um, it was fascinating because one got the impression, I, I certainly had this feeling, that international human rights law came of age. Because for the first time in, you ha- in a concrete case, Mm-hmm. Um, before, before you know, one of the most important courts in the world, you had the torture convention, the Nuremberg principles, the genocide, all these things being discussed. And, and not just discussed in the abstract, discussed in the case of a man, Augusto Pinochet, who'd become the iconic, you know, Latin American dictator. And um, when they, the, the um, the House of Lords gathered to hear the verdict. It was the, the judges rose one by one to give their their decision, to give their verdict. So you had it was like a soccer, like a football shootout, where one and 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 what was it was it was so tense because the first judge voted for Pinochet's immunity, the second judge voted for Pinochet's immunity, the third judge voted against Pinochet's immunity, the fourth judge voted against Pinochet's immunity. And it was all left to the fifth judge who, who voted against Pinochet's immunity. Wow. This was, this was a huge champagne moment. I bet. Three, um, three to two. Yeah. Wow. But, but what happened is that then Pinochet's lawyers said, well, wait a second. One of these judges was doing, had done fundraising for Amnesty International. Mm. And the whole thing had to be done all over again. Oh man! And so the process. So, so there's factors. There was a second hearing on whether the first ruling should be vacated. They decided unanimously to vacate the first ruling. And basically, so this takes us from October, the arrest, November, the hearing, December, the judgment, January, the vacating, March, uh, February, the new case, March, and I'm I had gone to London for like. A week, and I ended up staying for 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 six months, basically. Right. Um, was Pinochet in and, prison during this um, time, or was he in house arrest? Where was he? So he was under house arrest this whole time, and um, he he uh, I mean he had a nice place and everything, but he was he was he was under house arrest, mm-hmm. um, and he was being visited by his supporters by Margaret Thatcher. Who, I mean, the, the the interesting thing here is that Pinochet had been going to London every year. And um, uh, to take tea with Margaret Thatcher and um, to buy arms because he was still the head of the army to, to get his to, to, to do his, his, his medical checkups and things like that. But then he did it right after Tony Blair got elected. Mm. And at the time, I mean, for those of us who look back on Tony Blair, most of us don't have great memories. But um, at the time. He came into office promising an ethical foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And Pinochet was something that he could, you know, he could he could do. Mm-hmm. And 
Um, you know, what is amazing about really about the Pinochet case is not the law, because the law, if you look carefully, was there. The law that you don't have immunity for, for torture. The law that you can be prosecuted anywhere for crimes against humanity. The law of the torture convention was all. What was amazing about the Pinochet case was the political will to actually make it happen. And to me, one of the great moments of, of, of international justice um, comes on a Friday afternoon in October when the judge in Spain, who is investigating the case, um, uh, Baltazar Garcon, um, uh, who, who finds out that Pinochet is in London. Um, so I have to step back a second and say that the, the principle at issue here of universal jurisdiction says basically that um, you know certain crimes are so heinous um, uh, that either by by convention or by by customary international law they can be prosecuted anywhere in the world. And Chileans, um, when Pinochet left office in 1990, as you mentioned. Um, after losing an internationally brokered referendum, he, he, he rigged the system so that he couldn't be prosecuted. Mm-hmm. He put in, he put, he, he, he had immunity as a senator for life. Um, he passed, they passed an amnesty law. Um, and so even though most Chileans wanted to see him prosecuted, there was no way to prosecute him in Chile. And so the Chilean victims filed a case in Spain under this principle of universal jurisdiction. And the case ultimately got assigned, um, together with the case from Argentina, um, to Baltazar Garzón, even then fairly well-known Spanish judge. And Garzón started investigating the case and and spent years investigating it. And then he heard that Pinochet was in in London and he sent uh, a request to Scotland Yard to question Pinochet. And um, the ultimately the response from Scotland Yard said, we have no grounds to question him. And by the way, he's leaving. And if you want to do something, uh, the only thing way you can hold him is, is, is if you give us an arrest warrant. And, and Baltazar Garcon gets this on a Friday afternoon in, 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 in Spain. Um, and he, uh, he's described this uh, so memorably that, you know, he said, what do I do? And it's the afternoon, his secretary is gone. He doesn't speak English. Um, you know, if I do this, the entire world is going to change my reputation. As, you know, I, you know, this could be a colossal screw up, you know, if you're requesting the arrest of a former head of state. And he decides then that, you know, it, it, this is his historic moment. He has to do it. And he sends, uh, he sends it by fax through Interpol to, um, to Scotland, or I think sends it directly to Scotland Yard. And mm-hmm. what's amazing is that they actually execute the warrant. Um, I think in most countries, it would have gone to the, you know, the foreign ministry and said, wait, 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 we can't do this, you know? And they actually let it go through. And um, the, pol- the Metropolitan Police, and I had, I had this piece of paper hanging on my wall for years, and, where the Metropolitan Police of London go to the home of a, of a judge, of a part, what's called a part-time stipendiary magistrate, like the lowest judge on the ladder. And he, in a handwritten thing, he writes, you know, 
based on this complaint, and then I ordered the arrest of Augusto Pinochet. Wow. And they take this this one one page piece of paper, you know, hand, it's a form which is handwritten. Mm-hmm. Take it and they arrest him. And this is a man, you know, who said, you know, not a leaf moves in Chile unless I decide. And 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 he's laid low, you know, by a part time stipendiary magistrate signing <laughs> it at his home in the evening. And I think this is really a testament to the rule of law. Um, And Pinochet then goes to the courts and says, well, we can't do this. I'm a former head of state. And as I mentioned, the case goes up to the House of Lords. We have these decisions. Um, uh, The first decision is vacated. And then we go back. And now we have seven white, old white male judges. Um, uh, in a new panel, and they they basically affirm. I mean, they narrow it, but they affirm the decision. And ultimately, what happened is that Pinochet was ultimately, after spending a year and a half in in house arrest in in, in England, um, he they, they they he was sent home on medical grounds. That the um, there were independent medical tests. And the Home Secretary at the time, Jack Straw, said that he did not think that Pinochet was fit to stand, would be fit to stand trial. Very, very questionable decision. Um, uh, Pinochet goes, but so what was interesting is that Pinochet goes back to, to Chile mm-hmm. and the Chile, and it's no longer, the, it's not the Chile he had left. Um, the, Chile, the Chilean body politic was shocked by the arrest. They were shocked that England was doing something, that the UK was doing something that Chile should have done. Right. And the ju- the judges who said, well, we can't do anything because there's this amnesty, they found ways around it. They said, well, wait a second, the amnesty covers crimes of the past, but these people are still disappeared. And so the crime continues until today. And so using that stratagem, which is actually correct law um, and is being applied all over the world. Now, the idea that disappearances are a continuing crime that continue until the, the person is found, mm-hmm. um, um, uh, that they began to bring cases against Pinochet. And then people started ratting on Pinochet. So you had Pinochet's subordinates who started speaking to, uh, to judges and to the press. And so, and, and, and the truth about really about Pinochet's personal involvement in the crimes came out. His assets were frozen and then they found that he had socked away the supposedly defender, you know, defender of the, of the Catholic faith and, and a very religious man that he socked away millions of dollars in the rigged bank in Washington. And it really, as Roberto himself, Roberto Garrison, I talked about earlier said, mm-hmm. It real Pinochet's arrest really allowed our democratic transition to move forward. Up until then, it was paralyzed by this the veto of the military on anything, and um, so the the ripple effect. Even though he was not prosecuted in Spain, um, he, when he when he ultimately died, Pinochet he was he was under house arrest in Chile. And, and the cases against him were mounting, and the evidence against him had become overwhelming. Right. What a saga. What an incredible saga. And, I mean, these days, um, 
like you alluded to, you know, the kind of the high watermark of international human rights in a way, or the beginning of the high watermarks began with that historical epoch um, just at the end of the Cold War when things that were formerly totally impossible suddenly became possible. And that combined with um, cases like the Pinochet case and the adoption of the Rome Statute on the International Criminal Court and a whole range of other things really meant that the international human rights system could work in the way that it was designed to work. And obviously imperfect in all of that, but it was really beginning to achieve things and really, you know, be responsible for major turnarounds of law, policy, and practice in a whole range of countries. And I think, you know, today, 20 years later or so, um, I think that whole system in many respects is at a crisis point. So what are your thoughts on that? Um, where are we now in terms of international criminal justice after having such having had such a positive period in many respects, it seems now that um, there are more oligarchs, more dictators, more authoritarian leaders uh, than ever before, and that the system is being undermined by extremely powerful players um, who really have no interest in it functioning at all. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's, that's, that's largely true. I mean, the, the, 1998, which was the year that Pinochet was arrested, the year that the International Criminal Court was created, was certainly the high watermark for international justice. Um, and, and I think it was the heyday for human rights. I mean, human rights had become, uh, as I think, um, um, as I think Michael Ignatius put it, was had become the secular religion of the world. Um, mm -hmm. Everybody paid fealty to the idea of, of human rights. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that began to change, certainly with the, the attacks of September 11th, which were, which were used by the, the Bush administration um, to, to really change course um, and to, you know, to, to, to throw out the book and to, 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 to subordinate um, human rights to the so-called fight against the global war on terror. And that gave license to other countries to do the same. And, um, you know, then, you know, we've seen the rise of populism. Um, I think in general, not just for, inter I mean, in international justice is in crisis, a real crisis. Um, we see that at the International Criminal Court. Um, uh, but more generally, the whole human rights ideal is in crisis um, uh, when, I mean, there is no, um, you know, there, there is internet, globally in terms of governments, I don't think in terms of people it is. Um, and that's, I think, where the disconnect has always been, whether it's in the U.S. or elsewhere. Right. I think people in general are, are more attached than ever. To the fundamental, the ideas of dignity and equality, and 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 you know economic um, rights, um, but it's it's the, the oligarchs and the and the populists, whether it's in the U.S. or Russia or China or Turkey or Hungary or or, or Australia or anywhere. Brazil, um, yeah, um, Brazil. Um, you know, we're in a difficult moment, uh, and and. Um, I mean, I see that in, 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 in my own country, in the U.S., where 
I really see you have almost two countries. I mean, you do have two countries, and you you have this 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 wonderful world uh, of uh, greater tolerance and and greenness, and um, you you know you have a new world that's being born and an old world that's refusing to die. Um, Very true. And um, you know, I think I mean I see that. I mean, here in Spain where I live. Um, where, um, I mean, we're actually fortunate here to have a, a you know, a, a generally a, a, a responsive political system. Um, and you have, you know, transition. I mean, in most European countries, you have a really high concern about, you know, uh, ecological transition and the rights of minorities. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in, in Barcelona, where I live, although we could talk about the whole separatist thing, which is, I think, a, a, a very negative phenomenon because it, it goes back to this, we're better than you and, and, and dividing people on, along identity lines. But there's, there's a, a well, a tolerance and a welcoming of, in general, of refugees among the population. Um, but I, you know, I just see this. I mean, unfortunately, the, the struggle, you know, I identify with the woman who had a poster at, at the Women's March um, following Trump's election in Washington mm-hmm. uh, in January um, 19, I, I guess it was two, 2017, who had an older woman as a poster said, I can't believe I still have to come out and protest against this shit. <laughs> I um, know, yeah, completely. Y- you know, you you know, when you know when you spend as 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 you and I have you know a life you know fighting for social justice and you see where we are today, um, uh, you know still fighting the same battles, um, and you have so many people who have a higher consciousness. I mean, so many things have advanced. I mean, when I taught when I, my for my son, it's not. I mean, the issue of gay, gay marriage, the issue of transgender, it, it's normal. It's like there's no, there's no, what's the big deal, Papa, you know, about mm-hmm. this. Even mm-hmm. when Barack Obama was elected, I was going on and on about how there's a black president. You know, it's not a big deal to people of, of that generation, of his generation, the advances that have been made. Right. Um, and yet, you know, you have this, this, this other world that, 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 you know, refuses to go refuses to die that uses divisiveness that uses hatred that uses identity as a way of maintaining power by dividing people but the question is how are current day despots able to succeed in a world where far more people side with human rights and equality and dignity and respect and all of those things clearly the majority of the world is in that camp and yet despotic leaders um, are able to manipulate their populations and convince them that somehow their own actions are going to benefit the voters. Whereas in real life, those actions almost never benefit the very people that thought they would win by having their despotic leader on top. You know, that's the ultimate irony. I mean, any name, any of the the real hardcore authoritarian leaders in the world today. And, uh, you will see that the vast majority of people in those countries are not benefiting in any direct way from the policies or laws promoted by those leaders. And in fact, 
you know, it brings us back to the entire question of, you know, democratic legitimacy, uh, uh, winning power through the ballot box, even and often employing nefarious means to do so, and using that ostensibly legitimate process to bring about undemocratic changes. And that's a really worrying trend. And one can hope that this emergence of nationalism, populism, uh, you know, authoritarian leaders around the world is not anything that's inevitable and it's not anything that's going to be a permanent feature of the global fabric. It's simply the last gasp effort by the truly privileged elite classes that are so used to having their positions entrenched um, to hold on to power at any cost. And I think more and more people are becoming aware of that, or at least I certainly hope so. And so I think we'll end now uh, um, session one of this uh, enthralling discussion with you, Reed, and we'll come back in a couple of weeks and talk in more detail about, um, in particular, the Habre case in Chad, which you were so instrumental in following. And then I think really try to delve deeply into the question of the role of the individual in promoting international justice, because I think there's a lot of people out there, um, particularly students. Um, you know, I, I teach a lot of courses and, and talk to students all the time. And, and, you know, very rarely do they realize the extent to which one person can truly make a difference. There's kind of a resignation, you know, feeling that, oh, I can't personally make a difference in the world, you know, so I'm not even, uh, not even going to bother to try. And you're, you are personally like one of the great examples of, you know, a one human being who through very carefully chosen strategic decisions um, has, you know, fundamentally reshaped. Uh, the way in which justice and the system of justice globally is carried out. So we, sh we should delve deeply into that um, in an upcoming episode. And any final words for this first part of the series? We'll be coming back to you soon. <laughs> well, it's very kind of you to say that. Um, uh, I, you know, I do, I do think, um, I mean, I, I, you know, I came of age when Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young were saying we can change the world. Right. Um, and, you know, I think um, we, we can talk. I mean, it's an important discussion. How, how, what do we do? How do we, how do we as individuals and groups continue to fight? I mean, you know, we who believe in freedom, unfortunately, cannot rest. <laughs> um, and, but, you know, there, is, there are a lot of lessons to be learned from past struggles. Um, from past campaigns, um, even as, you know, we enter a new world where people are doing stuff that I could never have imagined doing. Um, and I'm continually impressed by the forms of organizing that people are doing now. So I look forward to those discussions, Scott. Thanks. Absolutely. And of course, one thing we'll delve also deeply into is, you know, what current leaders um, have carried out sufficient crimes to classify <laughs> as people down the road who may be pursued by the international justice system and how the list is long. The list is unfortunately very long. Um, but what will happen to some of the leaders in uh, all of the continents in the world, really um, down the road, if it 
is found that they have committed uh, gross and systematic human rights violations, crimes against humanity, war crimes, etc. So with that, um, we will bid you farewell. Part one of episode 26 of Jointly Venturing. Please have a look at onenessworld.org. You can access all of our episodes there and on five or six different leading podcast platforms. So with that, fare thee well. See you soon. Bye now.